This is the Right Way Podcast. Right Way Podcast. The 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 Right Way Podcast. Uh, hello, my name is Kea Roach Turner. I am the writer director of the most insane, head exploding Australian zombie film you're likely to see this year, Wormwood Apocalypse. And I am on the Right Way Podcast with uh, Samuel Elliott, and I'm stoked to be here. Yeah, Kia, thank you so much for the introduction there to today's episode of the Right Way Podcast Program. And hello to you, dear listener, for this particular episode of the Right Way Podcast Program with me, your host, Samuel Elliott, person whom you just heard introducing this particular episode of the Right Way Podcast is none other than today's guest, a very special guest in that they are of the filmmaker ilk, slightly different off the beaten track to the normal writerly novelist folk that we get that I get on the program. It was an absolute joy to talk to Kia Roach-Turner about his latest work, uh, which is the sequel or the second instalment, as I like to call it, in the Wormwood series that he is and his brother, Tristan, collaborating partner Tristan, uh, have written and created together. So Wormwood Apocalypse takes uh, place after the events established within Wormwood. Wormwood uh, was... Uh, particularly sterling zombie film that I saw well I actually saw it uh, at a special cinema screening uh, back in 2015 at the Dendy Newtown where Kia and Tristan along with some of their uh, crew folk and cast were there to talk about uh, this zombie filmmaking endeavour with Wormwood since then they created a, another uh, film as well Necrotonic Necrotonic was made with uh, starring uh, incredible French actress Monica Bellucci. And then since then, they've always planned on revisiting or returning to the Wormwood uh, law building, world building, creating that they created with the first installment there. And they have now done so with Wormwood Apocalypse, or Kia has now done so with Wormwood Apocalypse, which is now just dropping at the Sydney Film Festival as well. So yeah, me and Kia had... Well, I had the incredible good fortune of talking to Kia about his latest film there, Wormwood Apocalypse. So everyone, please give a big digital round of applause to Kia Roach-Turner talking to me about his latest film, Wormwood Apocalypse. Kia, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast program. How are you doing today, man? Um, yeah, I'm doing pretty well. Um, you know, we're sort of releasing a film and stuff and... Um, Yes, I'm pretty busy, you know, um, which is how I like to be. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna test the waters and say I'm good. I'm good. Good. Well, let's. Uh, let's Any listen. day I get to release a new film is a good day. <laughs> so I'm a happy man. Good man. Good. That's what I want to hear. So first and foremost, yeah. I was there. Kia, I was there back in 2015 at the Dendy Q and A session for Wormwood, the original. I remember you on stage or standing down the front with Tristan and producers talking oh, wow. about you. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. I've been. You were been, there back in the day. I was man. there. I was there back in the day. <laughs> you were I there mean, when the shit went down in Grenada. That's absolutely. I, I remember you telling us the stories about um how you filmed. You filmed the whole film, or you filmed a lot of it. I think you mentioned, and you didn't have a clapper. You thought a clapper was like a. It was. It was something that Hollywood people had. It wasn't something that you needed. Is that right? Is my memory oh, serving? Wow, that's correctly? embarrassing. Wow, I did say that. I had forgotten. I had forgotten that. I thought a clapper was a thing for show. Yeah. I didn't even know it was a sick sound. I'm like, that is embarrassing. Dude, wow. That's, thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> it was a long what? time ago. I wanted but you know what? I, I remember one of my first jobs I got in the industry was as um, head of digital content for um, 
uh, a company called Aussie Bum. And I remember my boss put, pulled me aside um, after about a week and he goes, look, I'm thinking of firing you because you're really talented and you're really s- smart, but sometimes I think you have a mental problem and I can't have somebody who works for me who is just casually stupid. And, um, and I have a tendency to be stupid sometimes on a, on a scale that is grand. So there, yeah, that does sound like me. It hasn't seemed to affect your performance in terms of producing movies, though. I mean, since between the original Wormwood and the new Wormwood Apocalypse, you've gone on to do, what is it, Necrotonic as well? Necrotonic. Necrotonic, yeah. It's hard to pronounce, yeah. So you've got another film under your belt. So, But, like, what I was trying to get at is I think back to those, those early formative days, 2015, and how far you've come now. And I wanted to know what this sort of journey was, because obviously you are always so passionate about revisiting or returning and creating the next installment in the Wormwood installment franchise, which it now is. Mm. What was the journey like? Because you had all these ideas that you were talking about as well, like what you wanted to produce. I remember there was, you mentioned about maybe a train being fueled by the zombies or something crazy like that. When did you tell me about the journey first and foremost? God, I forgot about the train idea. That's a good idea, but I guess, Train to Busan already yeah. took the whole train zombie thing. And, you know, the, the sort of endless train, you know, I think um, Bong Joon-ho already made a film about that. Yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe we'll forget yeah, about yeah. that one. Um, good idea, though. It was a good yeah, idea. The journey um, has been an interesting journey. Um, I've always been able to make films. I've always been pretty good at making films. Um, the hard, I'm actually really glad that this is like a writing podcast too because the hardest part I find is the writing. I've always found that. So, so for me, the biggest change over the last six years from the first film to now is, is, is a writing journey. Um, Wormwood was written very quickly and if we'd, shot, if we'd shot the script we wrote, it probably would not be great. One of the great things about the Wormwood experience was because we shot it ourselves and financed it ourselves over a three-and-a-half-year period, we had three and a half years to get it right. So we'd shoot a scene and then work it and then think and then stop and then save and then shoot another scene. And we sort of hopped through a series of months and we'd shoot every three or four months. And so we were able to shape the story as we went. Um, and so if you're writing in slow motion, that's the way to do it. If you're going to write a novel, take a couple of years, you know, but um, with a script um, and particularly with a film, you don't have that time because, mm. you know, time is money, usually allocated a budget. You've got between five and eight weeks to shoot it and that's it. Whereas with Wormwood, because it took so long, we, we could kind of get it right as we went. and it, it, it created itself as an organism from a writing perspective. So when it came time to write our second movie, Necrotronic, which is a super fun movie, um, a lot of my strength, uh, strengths as a writer um, were shown to be maybe weaknesses. Um, I, I found the writing of Necrotronic very hard. I had a really firm, strong vision that I just couldn't take a hold of. Mm. And so Necrotronic became this kind of... Originally, I wanted it to be this insane Ghostbusters meets um, Reanimator, you know, as passed through Evil Dead 2. You know, that was my vision. Gritty, low-budget, $2 million film. And because... I didn't have the chops as a writer to be able to latch onto that and write that to the point where it's just undeniable and it's going to get financing no matter what. It sort of evolved into something that was a lot more financially feasible. Um, It became, you know, this sort of big $10 million film about demons in the internet starring Monica Bellucci, Mm. which is great. You know, that's fun for everybody, but wasn't my film. 
and so I had to take a good, strong look at myself. And um, like after that, I just sat down and just wrote script after script after script. I wrote like four scripts in one year, like just writing, writing, writing. And then at the end of that period, I just went, fuck it, we're doing, can I swear on this? Yeah, fucking absolutely. But yeah, so I said, fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that. I said, fucking absolutely. Um, and I just went, we're just going to write Wormwood and I don't give a shit. Like all, I'm just going to write from the heart. And so yeah. we wrote exactly the film that we wanted to make. Like no notes, nothing. Like it's just like we just wrote through. Um, and it's the first thing where I've given it to a producer. Um, you know, we found the right guy to sort of, um, you know, collab on this with Blake Northfield, who's just like a gun. Um, he's like 15 years younger than me or something, even more, I think. I'm like, he's made like four films. I've only made three. I'm like, he's a, like, he just doesn't stop. But anyway, he read the script and he goes, great, let's make it. And I've just never had that where mm. like a producer has read a thing and gone, let's set a date, <laughs> you know, like that never happens. And that's a, that's a, that's a journey of, that's a, that's a writing journey. Mm. Um, I just had to get stronger as a writer. And, you know, one of the great things about looking at this film is, you know, the first film is kind of all over the place, like the narrative skews and turns and morphs, you know, um, it feels like we're making it up as we're going along because we are. Mm. Whereas this one feels tight, you know, mm. it's not the most amazing narrative, you know, it's not going to win any awards or anything, but it's a tight narrative with an undeniable structure and like arcs that are really clear, but it's not, it doesn't have that unoriginal studio thing going on where it's just like oh let's just copy a marvel template it feels original um and dirty and gritty which is kind of you know the, the type of films i've learned that i want to make you know, i want to make those classic 80s low budget throwbacks you know? so yeah so it's interesting you mentioned that so there was literally like you needed a passage of time to kind of and like you said you turned out a few scripts to to kind of get the swing of things so what was so you needed to do Necrotronic to kind of then understand what it was that you wanted to make with Wormwood Apocalypse? Is that kind of how that went down? Yeah, I made a, a, an ultra micro budget film in literally my mum's backyard. Then I got given this amazing opportunity, um, you know, by Hopscotch Pictures to go out and make a big $10 million, effectively a studio film. Um, and I realised that making a studio film is a hell of a lot harder than it looks. I mean, like once the budget balloons above a mm. certain level, like you're answerable, like every single creative decision you make is answerable to a committee, um, which is a hard way to create. And you have to be a... I don't know how Christopher Nolan and people like that do it. Like I don't know how Taika Waititi stamps his vision on a $100 million Marvel film. I don't know how... Like because I've been through that thing now and I'm just like the like dealing with like a, a corporate committee when there's like millions and millions of dollars on the line. It's like a really, really rough thing. It's a really hard thing to go through. And you have to be a very strong writer and a very strong creative to be able to make it through that. Like we made a good film, but I, there's a better film in Necrotronic. Um, I, I wish, I wish it was better. Um, and if I'd been a stronger writer, I think, and if I'd been, you know, if it hadn't been my second film, I think, I think it would have been great. It would have been, you know, the, the, it would have been the Australian low-budget Ghostbusters that we were all hoping for, you know. Um, but, yeah, I, I think I had to go through that to become, you know, a much stronger filmmaker to be able to come out and, you know, go back to my roots and make really what I should be making, which is really weird, crazy, gonzo, low-budget films, you know. 
Yeah, don't be too harsh on yourself, though, in terms of your second film, particularly with it. Oh, don't, don't get me wrong. Like, Necrotronic is a fun film. Like, mm. I've, heaps of people, there's heaps of fan bases out there, and there's heaps of people who write to me, and, like, there's people who hate Wormwood who love Necrotronic, you know? Mm. It's a really good film. I got to, you know, work with Monica Bellucci. Like, I got to work with some of the most amazing, like, artists and filmmakers in the country. Like, it was so super fun. The only thing I regret is that I wasn't able to stamp my vision on it. Mm. Um, it, it feels like me and five other people and like all my favorite filmmakers and all my favorite writers have this vision, you know, David Mamet, he's got a, there's a thing to his dialogue. Same with Tarantino, you know, I mean, um, Spike Lee, Martin Scorsese, David Lynch, you know, these people have a singular vision and that's what makes them last. Um, so if you want to make a film that people are still going to be talking about in 20 years, you, you have to sort of bring that singular vision to bear on your project and you have to earn the right to do mm. that you know and and that's through experience you know unless you're a genius like you know Denis Villeneuve you know just out of the gate is smart enough to be able to do it most of it just comes down to just elbow grease you know and it's like Paul Newman always said he wasn't a good uh, uh, actor he's like I'm not a good actor I had to work at it you know he's mm. like he doesn't feel like he gave a good performance until he was in his late 30s you know and I mean talk about being hard on yourself the guy's an icon but you know, there's a standard that you've got to raise to, and the only person who's going to get you there is, is you, you know? Is yourself, yeah. I think yeah. that, yeah, kind of like what you talked about mentioning Taika Waititi, um, those sort of people, I think that they've just elevated themselves to a point where I guess big, big, the money, the suits can't really push them around too much anymore. Um, one of the ones that I was interested about recently is Kate Shortland directing Black Widow, because, you know, that's like her first real kind of very different sort of kettle of fish to what she, you know, she's normally produced, which is underground or independent And, and, and films. she does have a very singular vision, yeah. Mm. But I like, haven't seen it yet. Is it, is it good? Is it, it is good. Does it, it is feel good. like a Kate Shortland film? There's bits of it. There's, there's, there's glimpses, I think, um, throughout, particularly when the more family sort of engaging stuff that you kind of go, yeah, I see it. I see that's, that's her. Um, yeah, but it's just an interesting one there because I think that Scarlett Johansson handpicked her, but... Um, yeah, I guess. I, I think if the person who is like, I mean, Scarlett Johansson is like a massive part of what makes that franchise run. Mm. Like she is a huge cog in the wheel. I mean, she's she's Black Widow. So if you've got, if, if one of the people who are like actually spearheading the project is 100% on the side of your vision, it's going to help. Mm. But it's still like, it's still a, it's still a hard job to go in there with a vision that has to also fit into a pre-existing template. Mm. That's square head. Uh, that's square hole, round peg territory. That's 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 some weird voodoo stuff that it, 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 they don't prepare you for that stuff in film school. You know, like you just got to be a hustler to be able to make that work. Okay, talk about the writing of When Would Apocalypse because I mean, like we said, when I saw you on stage or when you were talking about it, you had these ideas and kind of like with the train. But I mean, there was other ideas that you guys were throwing around as well. And then I kind of, um, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, I'd argue there's probably like a lot of major characters within, within One World Apocalypse, but I guess it is kind of Reese's story of redemption. Um, but like f- yeah. from when on did you create or want to, to feature him within the main character sort of heroes or anti-heroes journey? The weird thing about Wormwood Apocalypse is like the, the central premise of that film was mm. the central premise of the original Wormwood. So we originally wanted to make... The opening scene of Wormwood Apocalypse was supposed to be the opening scene of um, Wormwood Road of the Dead. Okay, really. But we couldn't 
really make it at the time because we needed a little bit more budget. And we yeah. also decided, we sort of started going down that road um, because Wormwood Apocalypse starts a year into the apocalypse and it starts mm. with this guy in an, a, 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 an electrified fenced enclosure surrounded by zombies and he's, he's, he's had to survive in the zombie apocalypse for, for a whole year, so he's battle-hardened and you follow him out into the world and that's how Wormwood was supposed to start. But weirdly... Tristan and I went and did a, a writing course at Afters to learn how to write this shit. And we started studying the hero's journey and all that kind of stuff. And we realised that if we wanted to start world building, it's probably better to start with an origin story. Let's start with a guy whose family is in the real world and, you know, the virus hits and then we start exploring into that world. And so then we had to sort of forget all of those original ideas um, and then just go on the journey of Barry, you know, trying to find his sister and hooking up with all these people. And then by the end of it, you sort of get the feeling that, you know, now we're in Mad Max meets Dawn of the Dead world-building territory and the sequel mm. will take care of all that other shit. So when we cut to Reese in his enclosure in Wormwood Apocalypse, that's actually supposed to be the, the protagonist of our original idea, you know. So, so the, the germination of this idea occurred over 10 years ago. So it's so fun to be able to rack up a lens on a, um, you know, piece of production design that I thought of like in 2010, you know, um, that's been a great journey for, for this, for this new film. I did like seeing this sort of expansion and you're right. Like it did seem like there was more of an expansion in terms of the law and world building. Cause you sort of, yeah, it does sort of start off in this day in the life of race with this sort of uh, enclosed farm area and how he's kind of taking full advantage of these, the zombies fueling, his, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, zombies, got the, yeah he's got the unlimited, yeah. um, the unlimited punching bag. Yeah, like he goes out, does his workout. He's got his zombie punching bag there to do his to do his punch to do his do his workout. And then he's got, um, you know, like the generator, which kind of his like his out. barbecue runs on zombies. Yeah, 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 yeah. All so, that stuff. <laughs> yeah, so all that stuff just just shows, I guess, kind of exactly what you were touching on there. So it's like the natural expansion into the world that you've kind of set up kind of or being started to within the first instalment there. So it's nice how that sort of all kind of worked out in the end of the second instalment. Well, the other funny thing about the writing of this one was, I mean, the, the, the germination of the idea, this guy in the enclosure and kind of the setup of the fact that he's, um, you know, he sort of works for the military, does he, doesn't mm. he, you know, um, we're not sure is he a good guy, is he a bad guy. That was all set up 10 years ago. But the basic um, narrative arc that this film follows was actually the arc for the TV series. So we wrote pretty much a whole TV series and looked to get that made. We were going to do it as, you know, a 10-part. It was 10-part, yeah. Show. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, we sort of looked into doing that and the financing wasn't quite in an area where we were comfortable. But we sort of looked at it and went, look, we could make a okay TV series, mm. pretty good TV series, or we could make a cracking film. Mm. Um, and we decided to just, because, you know, the finances weren't exactly where we needed it to be to feel, like, creatively comfortable, we just mm. went, let's make a cracking film. Like, let's make just the best sequel that we can. Um, so we actually truncated a lot of the narrative work that we've done for the TV series into a 91-minute format. So a lot of what you're seeing here in Wormwood Apocalypse is, you know, actually you know, sort of like a, 
little mini version of, of what was going to be the TV series. So with the TV series, did you was it a case of that you were thinking from a budget perspective it was going to be too diluted to kind of capture the vision you wanted? Or was it a case of you were going to then need to rely on financiers and you didn't want to be beholden to them potentially kind of uh, tampering with the vision? Both. Right. Both. So it was just on the edge. Like I'm look, I was looking at the budget going, man, yeah. like the one thing it has to be is like it has to be as good. We made a um, proof of concept of the TV series called um, Wormwood Chronicle and mm. that really did, that did really well. Um, that got like 30 million views in the first couple of weeks. Like we smashed that. Like, I mean, that was the one thing where we were just like, oh man, like there is totally, <laughs> there's still like a fan base for this film. Um, but, you know, that was shot, like that was, that's like a seven minute piece, but that was like five days. Mm. And so we were looking at the budgets going, man, I, I don't think we're going to have the time to shoot it as well as we shot that. Now that piece, that only cost about 60 grand. So that was pretty cheap, but we were sort of looking at it going, man, we're not going to have enough days to make it look that good. Mm. And so like, I'm just like, if we can't make it look as good as the POC, I don't want to do it. Like I, mm. I, I'm not prepared to make anything less than the best zombie film Australia could produce. So the zombie TV series that Australia can produce. Like we have to produce something that if it goes up on Netflix, you know, it could sit next to Squid Game and people go, yeah, like that's that's good. You know, I prefer Squid Game, but you know, Wormwood Apocalypse that looks amazing. Mm. Wormwood TV series had to look amazing. And if we couldn't get there, there's no point in doing it. So um yeah, we just, we, we did the film and, and actually weirdly doing the film, I'm actually looking at it going, we probably could have done the TV series because it was pretty low budget, this film. Mm. And um, I'm looking at how fast we shot with the crew that we had and, you know, um, the, the speed that we were able to work at. I'm like, oh, actually, we probably could have done it. But in a way, I'm glad we didn't because, you know, we ended up with a film that I'm, I'm probably more proud of this than anything I've ever done because... It feels low budget, mm. but it looks professional. And I'm just like, oh man, like all my life, I've just wanted to be a filmmaker. And it's like, there's that whole thing of like a filmmaker doesn't really find his or her stride until the third film. And I'm like, please let my third film be good. Like, um, and I feel, I feel like I hit my stride on this one. It's like the first film was copying a lot of styles. This feels like mine. Like mm. I'm looking at it going, yeah, this is, this feels like its own thing. You know, I mean, obviously it's derivative because of the nature of zombie films and, you know, Mad Max and Dawn of the Dead and all that stuff. But like the way that it's made, the style that I'm applying feels, it feels like the first proper Keir Roach-Turner film. And I'm, I'm very proud of it. And I probably wouldn't have got that with a TV series. So, okay, with, with the, the productions then, I wondered because what can happen um, when something's kind of goes really insanely popular, I guess, with, with a sort of uh, first film and then there's a sequel follow-up is it can be, can suffer from needing to be bigger, louder, grander, all that sort of stuff. And then it kind of loses the heart or the spirit of the original, which obviously hasn't happened with Wormwood Apocalypse in my humble opinion. But I wonder Thank then... Thank you for saying that, Sam. I mean, really I, nice I mean, yeah, thank you. I mean, but so was the production... Because I wondered, because obviously, yeah, it's been successful, and now it's your second second instalment. Then I was I was like, did the production in terms of the shooting, the way it was shot, the way you did it, was it sort of similar sort of amount of crew? Was it bigger? Was it larger? How did you sort of retain that spirit? Was it because it was quite a constant shot? You can't even, like, the two were so different. Like, mm. I didn't even know what a clapper was on the first yeah, one, you know? And, like... My mum did the catering on some shoots on the first one. Like, you know, I mean, um, 
it, it, it's such a different thing. Um, th this crew was pro um, and, you know, we didn't have, I mean, it was a very small budget, but the, the budget meant that every department was an appropriate department. Mm. And that's why it was such a brilliant thing to, to actually get what we needed, which was the middle ground between this crazy gorilla gonzo, we don't know what the fuck we're doing, Wormwood production and the $10 million super pro working with the best in the industry, Necrotronic production. Mm. We really did find a sweet spot where we got super low budget, creative control and a pro crew all of yeah, them man. knew exactly what they were doing you know so it's the the production flowed really well um i think we were able to make everything bigger mm. and it feels like that in the film when you watch it you know it really does feel bigger bolder more explosions more car chases you know more monsters all that stuff and i think it does have less heart i mean i mean not to the point where it's like detrimental but to me that's okay. Like I look at Mad Max 1 and Mad Max 2. Mad Max 1 is about a guy who loses his family. And Mad Max 2 is about a guy who convinces a bunch of people to jump on an oil tanker with him and try and go from A to B, you know? Uh, and I think the emotional differences between those two films is similar to, to Wormwood and Wormwood Apocalypse. You know, Wormwood mm. 1 is about a guy who loses his family and goes out searching for his sister. And, you know, um, Wormwood Apocalypse is, uh, you know, it's, there's a redemption arc in there mm. um, of, you know, this, this guy who finds out that, you know, he's, you know, effectively working for the bad guys, mm. um, but he doesn't know it. And, you know, he, he needs to atone for his sins. Um, you know, there's a sister who needs to find another family member and there's a continuation of characters from the first film. There's still a lot of emotional anchors in it, but it doesn't have that, emotionality of the first one because it really is you know from start to finish it's just go 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 and that's mm. what we wanted to do you know we wanted to cram as much emotion in as we could um because you know like there's no story worth telling if there isn't an emotional spine to it but we really wanted it to feel you know like aliens compared to alien you know we just wanted it to feel like a, a worthy sequel you know it, this should be wormwood 2.1 you know what i mean and you know, so, so I, I didn't mind sacrificing a little, a little bit of the character work that we had in the first one, um, because I think a lot of that, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the really nice character work in the first one really did occur because we were able to work with the actors for three and a half years, and we, yeah. you know, we, we moulded these characters over a very long period of time. Whereas you know, we had six weeks to just bang through this one, and a lot of action and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so the emotionality to this one is tighter. Um, through necessity, you know, mm. because we wanted a we wanted a faster film. We wanted a more high octane film. I think describing it saying like the the aliens to alien is a very actually a very good way here of putting it because I can totally see that as well. But it's not like it was emotionally bereft or anything like that because the whole thing with Reese and the redemption story, like there was like a close up at one point and he was like. They took my soul, you know. I was like, <laughs> all that man, like all that, you know, that paid off. So you know, it wasn't. It oh, wasn't. It wasn't, cool, man. It wasn't yeah, just. I love those big Shakespearean moments. Yeah. Where like the, no. Yeah, I exactly. Shit, you know, but you got to earn it. You know, because if if you don't earn it, it feels like farce. Um, but yeah, I, it's good. You know, I'm I'm pretty happy with a lot of the emotions. I, honestly, I, I would have liked to get a little bit more in there, maybe a little bit more humor in there too. But you know, like. It's a different film, 
Mm. Um, and you've got to let the film be what it is. And, um, you know, one of the great things we had in the first film was, you know, Leon Burchill was just like, hilarious. Like, oh, man, so, so funny. So good. So good. The and, test um, thing. I hate tests. That bit. <laughs> I was like, that's, I like, right, that's the best bit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you want a beer, Frank? You know, just that, that moments like that is so good. Yeah. Um, but um, we sort of, we moved away from that a little bit on this. We've still got a lot of laughs in there because mm, I, don't, I don't really know how to make a film without laughs. But because there were so many laughs in Necrotronic, I wanted to make it a little less silly. And I wanted to make a film that, that really felt more tense. Mm. Um, and so we, we do less of the silliness in this. But that's okay. You know, films have got to be different. Um, it's, okay. it's interesting that you yeah. bring it up here because I did kind of want to dovetail into that because I actually thought that, yeah, there wasn't maybe as much kind of obvious sort of humour throughout but I still felt that there was funny stuff in it, like the whole brecky time thing, the come shove this up my nose thing towards the end, like all that stuff I laughed at, man. I'm pretty sure I was supposed well, to. What we wanted with this one was to make the humour 100% situational without yeah. pushing the laughs. We wanted to see how many laughs we could get where it's just funny without being, you know, let's really push for it. It's organic. And, you yeah. know, like, you know, we, we cast Nick Boschier in there, who I think is one of the funniest gentleman in this country like he's so funny but we ended up going a little bit more dark with him like mm. he is more in he's like Hunter s thompson crossed with a reptile in this like he just went all out he came in loaded for bear he's like he, he wanted to do something like you know Heath Ledger did in the joker like and, and i'm just like let's do it man <laughs> like let's go for it so you know he he played less for laughs and i'm okay with that you know mm. and and like I keep saying, you sort of got to let a film be what it needs to be. And, mm. um, you know, this is less funny, but more action, um, more high octane. Um, but, you know, there's enough laughs in there to get a chuckle every seven minutes. And as long as you got that, you know, that, that's all you really need. Well, the main thing I noticed, like, kind of when I compare Wormwood um, Apocalypse to, you know, leading sort of American zombie shows and stuff like that is that there still is some humour and I think that that's kind of like a quality and I wanted to ask you here if you think that maybe that is one of the reasons why the films have been so popular. Um, is, it, is it because it has that sort of Aussie, I don't want to say larrikin humour, but that sort of Aussie kind of comedic sensibilities that you don't really find in a lot of the big sort of American zombie shows and movies? What do you reckon? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, like, Americans invented the classic stand-up comedy thing. Like, Americans are the best at comedy. Like, they're mm. phenomenal. But then you got the English dry humour. You know, Shaun of the Dead is the funniest zombie movie ever made, and it's the funniest zombie movie that will ever be made because, you know, Simon Pegg and Edgar Wright and Nick Frost are the comedy geniuses. Mm. Um, yeah, Australians have a different kind of humour. Like, it's not... British dry and it's not American silly. It's kind mm. of, um, it's laconic. Um, you know, we don't push for a joke in the same way that an American comedian, you know, will shuck and jive for it. Like if we did that, it would sound horrible. Um, and if we, if we, if we try to do the dry UK thing, we just sound snobby. So Aussies have to find, you know, humor in situational comedy. And, and one of the things I love about Aussies is, you know, if, somebody finds a severed head on the road and they pick it up. Is this yours, Barry? Like, to me, that's funny. You know what I mean? Like, it's just the dry underplaying of a moment that I find hilarious with, with Australians. And, you know, I think, I think that underplay is, is something that I think the world likes about us, you know? Like, we're unpretentious. Um, and that's one thing that we wanted to avoid on this. We didn't want to make 
a zombie film with even a hint of pretension. Like this is a zombie film that just isn't afraid to just go, yeah, this is big, dumb, crazy fun. Like mm. it's, it's, the premise is ridiculous. Like zombie breath, the methane coming out of zombie breath can run a barbecue. That's ridiculous. But if zombies had methane in their breath, you would totally run your barbecue from that. So it also makes a kind of sense too, you know? So mm. it's, you know, it's a, it's a funny little way of making um, a ridiculous situation um, work for you when you need to cook some barbecue in the morning. You know? I think it's just, yeah, I think that the premise is there and I think as well, it's being like unabashed about embracing the ridiculousness. Yeah. That I think that, that appeals to people in the audience because you're delivering what they want without kind of trying to hide it behind various sort of pretentious subtext, I guess. You're kind of just delivering what people are after when they kind of sign up for zombie movies and, and stuff like that. I feel that they kind of, certainly with me and my viewing habits, I can feel that I've been let down sometimes when I go into something just wanting um, a certain type of uh, horror zombie experience and being denied that because it's just gone into this kind of realm of just trying to provide some sort of kind of heavy-handled social commentary or something like that. Don't you agree here? Like, don't you think that that can happen sometimes and some films can fall victim to that sort of stuff? If you're good at social commentary, do it. Mm. You know, that's fine. Like, you know, um, heavy-handed can be great, but that's not what I want to see. Like, mm. the, the hole that I saw in this particular market was like, I love Mad Max. I love mm. the tone of it. I love the feel of it. They don't make enough of them. You know, like George can't make enough of those films. I'm like, I want one every year, you know. Um, and I love the anarchic insanity of Dawn of the Dead, the original mm. Dawn of the Dead, which was very funny and it was very situational. You know, a lot of that humour, um, like, was on the edge of farce. You know, mm. the idea that, you know, you've got these zombies in a mall still shopping um, and, you know, the idea that you could run around with these zombies and it's fun. Like, to me... That world is fun and, mm. you know, the, the world that, you know, the post-apocalyptic Mad Max world that actually, when I think about it, kind of was half stolen from Roger Corman with um, um, Death, Race, Death Race 2000. Um, that world is fun, you know, and so we wanted to make something that felt that fun, that immersive, um, that didn't take itself too seriously but took itself just seriously enough so that you're not taken out of it you know because if it's too funny it's not real so yeah. it's not scary you know what i mean there's no tension if it's like zombie land is a comedy you know what i mm. mean like there's no tension there um i mean even Shaun of the dead there's not a huge amount of tension because you know there are last but it's so goddamn funny and it's so beautifully directed that doesn't matter mm. but that's a, that's a thin line to tread but you know we we just we didn't want to push the fast too much on this one you know? i guess i guess it's just knowing what you wanted is what it is exactly that you want to deliver yeah without kind of trying to do too many things like it's just good to keep like all dishes. I guess it's kind of good to keep a few simple ingredients and not try and throw the whole whole works in in the kitchen sink. Well, there's nothing better than a filmmaker or a pair of writers who know exactly what they want. Mm. And like whether you like it or you don't, you're in good hands. Mm. So if you don't like it, just turn it off. But if you kind of like it, it, it it's, it's going to be good because like, there's been no compromise and like we have a very, very clear vision for what this film should be. Um, and we've just had a huge amount of help, you know, with all these amazing artists helping us get there, you know? And so that's when a good film can be made. This is not a great film, but it's damn good. You know what I mean? And like, it's so nice to have done something again where I'm just looking at it going, Oh, I like everything about this. Um, it, it's all kind of good. It all kind of works. You know, it's, um, 
and yeah, it's really nice to be releasing a film out there where even if the critics, you know, give me a mauling, I'm just like, well, you know, that's okay. I can literally just quote, you know, the Big Lebowski and say, hey, man, that's just like your opinion. Your opinion, man. Your opinion, man. <laughs> you know, because I don't care. I like it. So, you know, that's all That's all that matters really at the end of the day is, you know, I look at it and I like it. There's nothing in it that I don't really like. And um, I'm just lucky to have, to have gotten A, to make a film and B, to make a film that I actually like. So, yeah, it's, you know, it's good. Well, absolutely. And also, I mean, I guess that when you when, when you factor in the critic sort of situation, I guess that um, it's more it's more if you've got a fan base and obviously the Wormwood original attracted a huge fan base. And I kind of wondered as well here if that then sort of impacted the shaping of what would become Wormwood Apocalypse with, with how you, like a particular story you wanted to tell. Was there a balance between what you perceived as needing to be some semblance of fan service as well as the story you wanted to tell or just like the humor that you kind of talked about, did that just kind of happen organically? No. And like, maybe that's a failing. Me and Tristan, like on this one particularly, we just went, you know what? We're just going to do what we want. Like, you know, and we'd, we'd gone through so many, um, you know, iterations of the last film. Um, mm. You know, we'd, we'd been developing so many projects with studios and stuff and we just went, let's write it so that the budget can be as low as possible so it's most likely we'll get to make it and the one rule is if we don't like it it ain't happening like it's just that simple and so if me and tristan both agreed that a thing had to happen it was in there so sometimes we disagree between ourselves and we work that out or whatever and sometimes somebody would suggest something or you know give us a note or whatever and if one of us was on this you know it's you know it's negotiable You, Mm. you can't filmmaking isn't like you can't be a fascist dictator it has to be negotiable because it's um it's a team sport mm. um but um but but basically the rule was if, if me and Tristan wanted it it was in you know and and I've realized that there there is a certain kind of fascism when you know what you're doing mm. um that I think is important um you know because if, if if you really know what's best for a project and you're a strong enough creative creative to kind of show it in an intelligent way and justify it, then you should get it. Um, otherwise, you just you're working with the wrong people. Um, mm. Otherwise, you know, and that's what it comes down to is you know, you've got to pick the right collaborators, you've got to have the right budget range for control, all of that kind of stuff. But you've also got to have you know a strong enough vision to to justify you know, you getting your little manipulative controlling ways you know? so just you mentioned about collaboration and obviously with tristan how's that um the process obviously works for you because you guys have revisited several times now on big projects how does that kind of work do you do you pitch it to each other and shoot ideas down or come up with, with alternatives and concessions how does that kind of work we're very different people mm. but because we're brothers we've had all the same influences so if i reference aliens he knows what i'm talking about mm. if he references something from evil dead 2 you know, mate, we've watched that film like 50,000 times together in my little bedroom, you know, back in Petersham in 1995. Um, so, like, like we, we are very different and we do differ on some projects, but mm. on Wormwood we are 100%. And this is what I've come to realise is Wormwood is a world that I've built with my brother. Wormwood's half me, half him. Um, and our differences make the strength that is that world. So, um, you know... It, it's taken us a long while, but like we really came together on Wormwood Apocalypse in a way that we've never really done before. Um, and so I feel 
we've really found our stride as collaborators. And I think that's probably the only way that we can collaborate now is like, we, we just have to have that thing where we find something that we're both so strong on that we can come together like Voltron to create mm. something that has a strong vision together. If we're pulling, you know, apart, then, you know, we can go off and make it with somebody else or whatever. But like, it's just when, when, when he and I are like together on something, like we're so strong, it's just the best, you know, it's, it must be that feeling that Joel and Ethan Cohen have, you know, um, not anymore though, because, <laughs> because no, 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 making no. Macbeth on his own. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. Um, the closest sort of comparison. But sorry, um, to, to, to go, to, to go, how we work is yeah. we, we'll, we'll work the boards. So we'll, we'll come up with a very specific story arc and like mm. we'll hit every beat and then I'll go off and write it. Cause I, I can't write with somebody sitting behind me. I just, I just can't mm. do it. I have to go into a world and I'll do a draft and then he'll give me notes on that draft and then so on and so on. But we do a very, very involved story process where we get together and work the boards and, you know, just, you know, agree on every beat. And then I have to go off and type the words myself because I just can't, you know, can't do anything alone. Well, so you storyboard it first. No, 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 no. Um, uh, I'll actually write it into final draft. Oh, yeah, I yep. can't write um, uh, with somebody else. I, I just can't. No, fair. It freaks me out. <laughs> I can't either. So, Kev, main thing I want to know now, and I always like to ask this question on my, on my show is uh, you've mentioned about writing being a difficult part of the, of the process for you. And I always want to know, it doesn't necessarily have to be about your, your writing journey, just your journey as a creative. There we go. Nice wanky way of putting that. Your journey as a yeah, creative. It's a terrible word. It's like franchise. <laughs> it's a dirty word. I use that word way too much. A creative. So for me, I want to know, when there was a period or if there's ever been a period where you yourself reached, and I mean, like you've, you've been an absolute battler when it comes to the making the first, making the first one. So was there ever a period like a crossroads that you reached at, you know, at sunset with the devil there in your back saying, give up and you were plagued of self doubt. And there was a moment where you, you very nearly did abandon whatever it was that you were working on or anything like that. Did you ever come to a period of like that sort of level of kind of crippling self doubt? And if so, how did you kind of prevail through that? No, Never? Never. Oh, man, that's so good Never. to hear. No, no, just because I'm, and again, I don't want to say this word, but I am an artist. I've always been drawing and, like, making things. I have to do that. Mm. So, like, even if I have to make sock puppet films, I'll make sock puppet films. But, like, having said that, like, any artist or creative or writer, I am plagued with a constant voice sitting right here. That's right there, isn't just it? Just saying, yeah. yeah. Your shit. Yeah. Tarantino's a right. Um, you know, you're not. Like, you're yeah. terrible. Like, you, why are you nowhere near as good as all the people you want to be? You know, Scorsese's a real director. You're not. Like, you know, I've got massive, massive self-doubt. Um, mm. But I, I know that I have to create because making things makes me feel better. Um, and I'm learning more and more. It's a cliche, but... You know, I think everybody learns this with time. I'm learning more and more that the process is the thing. Mm. It's not the result. It's not the critics. It's not the people jumping up and down and saying you're good or bad or whatever. It's I love to make things. I love to get on set and have, you know, two or three cameras running. Somebody's holding a smoke machine. Somebody's over there, you know, um, getting ready to throw dirt. Somebody's on a... Um, you know, ladder with a paint tin, uh, you know, the production designer's having a breakdown. Somebody's trying to push the car because the petrol won't go. We've got to make it look like it's going to go. There's an explosion about to go off and I'm about to say action. 
that's my favorite like it's my favorite thing you know um and it's like i was never really super good at sports or anything but i imagine that's what it would be like to, to be a football player you know to go out onto that pitch and you've got a whole team there and you've got a game plan and you're just going to play and the play is the thing you know and 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 and, and when you get into this thing called the zone and, you know, there's, there's been whole scientific, you know, um, uh, investigations into it, you know, like that moment where, um, you know, uh, Jordan is about to take, you know, the 10th, the you know, he just gets into a flow, mm. you know, and when you get into a flow and you're just hitting basket after basket and you're performing at the top of your abilities, physically, mentally, creatively, you can't see anything you've got tunnel vision, you can't, you, like, you're not even aware that you're going to die. Everything is good, you know, because you're so pinioned into that one tiny moment. And I only get that on set when I'm creating or writing or doing a thing. And I have to do that because that moment is better than any drug or anything that you're going to get ever. Mm. So I would never deny myself that, you know. Um, but yeah, there's always self-doubt. And the way you put it with the demon sitting on the shoulder, uh, yes, I'm very, very, very well acquainted so, with that. With that demon, that demon's always on my fucking shoulder too. So, no, a very good way well, of putting it. Well, the problem is, it's it's a demon of comparison. You know, like I'm mm. always comparing myself to my heroes. You know, um, and like you can't be Martin Scorsese. Mm. He's already done that. You have to be the best version of you. You know, mm. and. Um, but it's a very hard, you know, it's, it's hard to get to that point. To right? console that, yeah. But I think the Martin Scorsese also does the same thing. Like he, he'd sit there and say, oh, I'm never going to be Fellini or some, someone someone like that. He just probably agonises over that even now. He does, you know, he does. Mm. And you, you hear him talk and he's always talking about Sam Fuller and all the real directors, you know, mm. back in the period. He's like, I'm not a real filmmaker. You know, the real filmmakers were Howard Hawks, you know, making three films a year, you know, like, um, and so he, he he's you know, comparing himself to all these dead people from so long ago and I'm mm. comparing myself to him mm. and one day somebody will compare themselves to me or whatever, you know, and it doesn't fucking, none of it matters um, because at the end of the day, we've all got the same demon on our shoulder saying you're shit um, and, you know, we're all trying to prove him wrong by making amazing things, you know. Um, That's true. What was it, um, you know, self-esteem is only built through making esteemable things. Um, and so that's what you're trying to do, is try to build your self-esteem by making esteem, esteemable things. You know? We're all trying to look for the next thing that's going to make us feel good about ourselves. And in my case, you know, yeah, it was a zombie film. And it did work, though. That's the weird thing. You know, like I, I got to the end of it, and I was like, oh, yeah, I'm really happy with this. But the funny thing is, Sam, like the critics are going to come in in the next couple of weeks, and they're going to tear me a new a-hole, man. Like, and that voice will be back. And, you know, I'll have to start making another film so that I can... Um, like a junkie going yeah. back to trying to find that happy place, you know? I guess, mate, with, with your type of films, though, I guess that, like, the, the you're not after the sort of cricket critics' sort of accolades or anything like that. You don't give a shit about any of that sort of stuff. I'm absolutely really. after just... the critics' acc- accolades. Well, are you really? Because I've probably just been the fan base, man. Fan base, fan base, fan base. Absolutely. No, no. The voice on my shoulder says, you only make comic book films. They're not real. They're kids' things. It's all silly bullshit. Why don't you make a real film like a real man would? You know, like, you know, but then, you know, you've got somebody who's making like straight drama and they go, yeah. oh, why can't I make a fun film like Lemon Apocalypse? Like, why yeah. do I make these dramatic films that nobody cares about? Why can't I make something fun? The grass is always greener, you know? Um, nobody's ever happy with, with what they do, you know? No, we, we all just keep trying like fools. 
and like you said, the esteem will like the pursuit of that. Just, just the. And I think you said something about the pro, it's the process and not the product. And I, when we feel on that one as well, I think it's just a. Well, the, it's a funny one. I, I am actually trying to make a drama at the moment. But they're really hard to finance. Mm. Super hard. Like um, I've been spoiled by making horror films because there's always like um, easy, you know, process to production with mm. horror because there's a standard fan base that's always waiting for, you know, a zombie's head to explode on screen. But with drama, it's harder because people are just like, well, why should we make this? You know, it's depressing. What's your hook? You know, is Matthew McConaughey in it? Then why should we make it? And I was like, oh, so I'm learning this. I'm trying to crack this new genre and like learning a whole new set of problems, you know. So I'm, I'm having to learn how to surmount that in order to get, you know, this dramatic film that I'm trying to make made, you know. Well, but that's all fun, you know. It's, yeah. Man, my hat goes off to you anyway because I truly think like the the creating of film is is, is one of the hardest uh, to create a feature film in Australia. Like I myself write novels, and that's kind of the way that I kind of want to eventually get into the older uh, filmmaking adaptation thing. But I actually find that uh, the the process of what you do, which is making feature films, particularly zombie films, uh, would be incredibly incredibly daunting to try and get you know a solid reliable crew together and all that sort of stuff. It, it's a funny thing. Because people intellectualise it and they think, and there's a lot of armchair filmmakers out there who go, because I can see a Christopher Nolan type film in my head, mm. I can make a Christopher Nolan type film. And it's like, no, mm. like the, phys- the physical actualization of what you're seeing in your head, the way to get there is not how you think. It's not an intellectual process. Richard Linklater put it really well where he's, he was talking about filmmaking as a team sport too. He's going, to be a filmmaker, you have to be a coach. Like you have to be able to be physical. You have to get people together. There's like an emotional manipulation of getting somebody onto the field who's scared of being on the field. You've got to be able to go, 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 go. It's, it's, it's time-based. Mm. Like, you know, um, so it's not about am I smart and am I creative? It's am I smart and creative fast? And can I do it on deadline every day for eight straight weeks? You know, it's, there's, there's so many things that go into it other than just the intellectual understanding of what it is. And so filmmaking, weirdly, you know, it's not enough just to be a good artist. You have to be mm. a good artist and you have to be also somebody who can coach a, you know, basketball team effectively. It's just a basketball team that's made up of production designers and editors and cinematographers and lighting designers as opposed to a forward in the back and I don't know what other names of basketball team players there are. But you, know, you get the, you get the, get the idea. All right, so Kia, to, to dovetail and to finish off, mate, and you kind of already touched on it a little bit, but I'd love to hear you give some advice to aspiring filmmakers, particularly those that are seeking to make something similar or a different type of genre than perhaps uh, the, the drama that we've already covered. I always give the same advice. Um, when I was 20, I found a book that had the name and address of every single Australian filmmaker, like, that existed. So I wrote over a hundred letters to, you know, everybody, Gregor Jordan, Baz and George Miller, all these guys I wrote, like it was a handwritten letter to every one of them asking them to help me. What, you know, can I get on one of your sets? I love your films, you know, all the usual stuff, you know, like I just want to know how to make films. And I got one letter back and it was from Peter Weir. And he wrote back and he said, when I was your age, I wrote a similar letter to everybody in the film industry. And I got one letter back and it was mm-hmm. from a producer. And the producer said, if you're a filmmaker, make films. I know it doesn't sound great, but you will make films and then you'll be a filmmaker and that's how it will be. Like you've just got to go out, 
and do it. Only you can make it happen. I can't help you with that. All I can do is give you a job and it won't mean anything. If you're a filmmaker, you have to make films. That's the rule. And he said 10 years later, he was on the set of The Last Waltz and there was an extra, an old guy who came up and tapped him on the shoulder and he turned around and he said, Mr. Weird, do you remember me? I was that producer you wrote to. I remember that letter from 20 years ago. I was right, wasn't I? And um, that's the only advice there is, you know. Like I, I can tell you how I got where I am, but it doesn't matter because that's not how you're going to get there. Mm. Like if you're a filmmaker, go out and make films. Like there's iPhones now. Like, like you can make a film on your phone. There is literally no excuse. You know, there are films out there winning awards at Cannes that were shot on an iPhone. There is no excuse. Mm. Start now because the only way to learn is to do it, you know. And filmmaking is such a difficult, weird voodoo art that you can't be told how to do it. You can only really do it by doing it. So, yeah. No, man, that's good advice. And you're right. I mean, the shooting of stuff on iPhones, I mean, like Sean Baker's Tangerine. Have you, uh, have you seen that one? That's the one I was thinking of. Yeah, Tangerine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, was it Sundance or Cannes? I can't remember. But he cleaned up somewhere. He, a lot of his films yeah. always do pretty well. Deservedly so. He's a fucking great filmmaker. But um, yeah. 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 No excuse now. Do it on your phone. Okay, man. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I love seeing a success story, particularly with a battle that's out there, making something that uh, is off the grid and just their vision brought to life, man. So it's absolute pleasure talking to you. It's absolute pleasure seeing the expansion of the Wormwood trilogy or the Wormwood second installment into Wormwood Apocalypse. And thanks, Sam. And, and thanks for watching the film and thanks for saying nice things about it and thanks for inviting me on your awesome podcast. Um, you've had some great people on this too. I'm just looking down the list here. You've got Sean Grant, man. Yeah. He's smart. Fucking yeah. Snowtown. That guy can write. Um, Matthew Riley is doing Interceptor at the moment. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. My my composer actually did all the music for Wormwood 1 and 2 is composing for Interceptor 2, so he's working with that. Oh, man, that's so cool. Yeah, no, it's yeah. been it's been a crazy, 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 crazy journey that I'll, I'll tell you about uh, off, off the record. But, yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> An R-rated journey. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so right, much. Let's talk later. Thanks, Sam. So, everyone, there you have it. That was me having the immense good fortune of talking to Kia Roach-Turner about his latest film, Wormwood Apocalypse. Huge thanks to Kia for speaking to me on the show, as well as fighting the good fight with creating uh, epic zombie movies within the Australian sphere. It's always good to see. I always love seeing uh, battler filmmakers making stuff that goes off the beaten path, as it were, with uh, films of the zombie genre. So absolutely awesome to see uh, Kia Roach-Turner doing that and doing well, and also uh, that the film was picked up and is now being showcased within the Sydney Film Festival. So to that end as well, I will put into the biography slash description of this episode the link to uh, the Wormwood Apocalypse section of the Sydney Film Festival uh, entry there so you can get the tickets and run, not walk, to a session in your local cinematorium. I can't thank Kia enough for talking to me on the show. It's an absolute pleasure as a gentleman and a scholar. Love seeing what he's doing, producing with uh, within the Australian film industry. It's an absolute joy to see that. So, Kia, keep doing what you're doing, my man. But uh, also to you, dear listener, thank you so much for listening to this particular episode of the Right Way Podcast Program. As always, I live to give in that regard. And in terms of giving, I live to uh, continue to give episodes to you uh, for your listening pleasure. So it is uh, so rewarding to see the ever-proliferating numbers of listeners to the ever-proliferating numbers of uh, episodes. I think Kia's, I've got to check it, but I think he might be 
number 5-0, maybe. I'm not 100% sure, but um, in any event, I have a couple more guests coming up. So we're definitely going to, we're well within that threshold of hitting 50 guests before the program's first birthday, which is uh, just been made the 1st of November. So that's coming up, but uh, yes, definitely going to hit that threshold before then. So I will try and put out a movie or a little video of some description uh, to celebrate that milestone of the first birthday. I've been shopping around, albeit I haven't really, but uh, I've been certainly thinking about shopping around, trying to get a like a little party hat for me and my cat Chicky to wear in some type of embarrassing, absurd photo to mark the occasion of the milestone. But um, yeah, I'm gonna have to go back to the drawing board for that. You'd think that there would be more sort of little party hats for, for cats, uh, but apparently not. But anyway, I digress. Thank you again so much to Kia for appearing on the show, doing what he's doing. Thank you so much for you to listening to this episode of the Right Way Podcast Program. Be sure to give a cheeky follow to the show on Spotify if you haven't already. And stay tuned uh, for a couple more guests coming up that I don't want to spoil the surprise as to who they are, but just you're just going to have to listen. And on that note, uh, much love and goodbye.